This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. In our movement through John as a church community, we have been slowly approaching the crucifixion. And Jesus's crucifixion is not this tragic end, but it is his purpose. It ushers in God's kingdom. It breaks powers. It sets people free. And every move he makes, every conversation, every person who is a part of this story is intentional. And in our text for today, we have more deliberate steps, conversations, and details than happen again at this intersection of religion and politics. Religion and politics can't stay separate. One influences the other, and in and of itself, that isn't necessarily bad. Our faith in Jesus, our understanding of God's heart should affect how we think of politics and how we engage in the process. But what is problematic is when faith is maneuvered, when faith is co-opted in order to serve political ends. Because in order for that to happen, it requires a remaking of God, an altering of the gospel. It is a tale as old as time that religion is what will adjust to the worship of power. This is true today, and Jesus himself experienced this. His body was caught in this twisted web of religion being allied with law and order. And that is what we see in our text today in John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. We're going to work through this today piece by piece, so please join with me as we read the first five verses of John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you, to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Here is the man. So to start, Pastor Daryl has already given us great background on Pilate this leader who has been appointed to his position by the emperor and is really skating on thin ice right now. It is his responsibility to maintain law and order. And things at this point are kind of intense. So it's Passover, which means that the city is full of Jewish civilians, a group of people that has been rebellious in the past as they have tried to fight for their freedom from an oppressive government structure. And on top of it, you have this unique relationship between the Roman government and the Jewish religious leadership. The Romans had taken the power of deciding who the high priest would be away from the Jewish people, and they had made it into this very political position. 
So at this point in their history, the person responsible for appointing the high priest is actually the king, Herod. So government was electing the religious leadership. So it is no surprise that when that switch takes place, this is a position that is riddled with corruption. The king wants a high priest who is going to give him maximum cooperation and control over the Jewish people. So the high priest would often get his position through bribery, exchanges of favors, playing the game with the government. If you could handle the politics, you could probably obtain the position, which meant making religious compromises and trying to maneuver political power to get what you want. So here, with that context, we have Pilate trying to figure out, how do I release Jesus and appease the religious leadership? He needs to prevent another Jewish uprising. For him, with his power, these are very high stakes. So he had already attempted to get them to try Jesus themselves. He tried making this exchange for Barabbas, but the religious leadership is relentless. They have something that they want for their own ends, and they will work all the angles of government in order to get it to work in their favor. So Pilate's next attempt, since everything has failed so far, is to try having Jesus flogged. So Jesus, after being questioned, being up all night, a pawn in this game of power, is handed over to be flogged. So for flogging, the victim would be bound to this low pillar or stake, and they would be beaten with rods or scourges, these leather straps that had spikes or lead balls on the end. We see the severity of the infliction upon Jesus later with his inability to bear his own cross. And this isn't just physical. The Romans also included this emotional and mental torture as much as they could as well. They ridicule him, they mock him for this claim that he is a king. They take time to create this crown of thorns and they press it into Jesus's head, blood running down his face. The government was very strategic and effective in their brutality. Their torture is also their sick form of entertainment also. They throw this purple robe of royalty across God's own son, the cloth sticking into these wounds in this torn apart body. And they take turns in this mock coronation, bowing to him and then taking another swing, one right after the other. So after Jesus endures this, Pilate brings him out, beaten, thorns sticking into his head, robes stuck to open wounds. Here's the man. Pilate is trying to appease them. Look at this man, raw and bloodied. He hardly appears to be a king in this moment. Look at how weak he looks. There's no threat here. I've done enough. Verse 6 says, When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, 
And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. So he brings Jesus out and you can almost feel the panic rising up in Pilate as their response is not to be appeased, not to let Jesus go, but crucify. Pastor Darrell mentioned this in last week's sermon, but crucifixion is this powerful symbol in the Roman world. It was this brutal way of killing with maximum degradation and humiliation. Crucifixion was meant to convey, we're in charge here, you're our property, and we can do to you whatever we like. It was this visible marker, this proclamation, that as people would look up and see the body hanging, Rome and Caesar are sovereign. Crucifixion was a mode that communicated final authority and power lies in empire, lies in nation. So here we have the religious leadership specifically asking for this. The Roman government, they kept close tabs on who would be a revolutionary threat, who should be killed in this way. They're not the ones who view Jesus this way. Rather, it's God's people who find him to be a threat. So the leaders of God's people demand from the government a way to kill Jesus that says, nation first. The Jews had struggled previous to this for hundreds of years to achieve freedom from this government. And yet, they appeal to it when it can benefit them, which requires them to make compromises about where their allegiances lie and who they believe is Lord. So Pilate here, this plan not working, tries again to throw the responsibility back on them. There are no valid criminal charges. Legally, there's nothing that I need to do. I've already done enough. But they try the religious angle again. According to our religious law, you can't claim equality with God. He has to die. So where we have wanted you hands off in how we practice our religion, we now want you to act on behalf of it. There's really nothing new under the sun. Their response here kind of freaks Pilate out because he hears Jesus claims also to be a son of God, the son of God. Now Pilate, we have to remember, he lives under a pagan religion that has superstitions, that has mythologies and legends about divine beings. So son of God for him has a very real and a very lofty attachment. What if this is one of them? Does Jesus actually have something divine in him? It says he was more afraid than ever. He's already probably a little nervous about what's going on, and now he finds out this could be playing with the spirit realm on top of everything. So at this news, he's kind of like, yeah, I need you to hold on a minute. He's got a conference with Jesus again. So in verse 9, we read, He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, 
Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. So Pilate goes back inside and concerned, asks Jesus, where'd you come from? But for Jesus, the time for addressing this has passed. He knows that the governor is about to give way. Met with silence, Pilate gets a little indignant. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how much power I have? Don't you know that I hold your life in my hands? Beaten, bloodied, kind of looking like the one losing in this situation at this point. Jesus says, you'd have no authority at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. Probably one of the last things that Pilate expected to hear at this point. In a darker moment than we have ever faced with his very body, being subject to violence, with religion and politics failing him and violating him, when evil seems to be winning, when hope seems to be lost, without flinching, Jesus says, yeah, the power that you have still isn't the greatest. He is so wonderfully grounded and rooted in his trust of the Father's power and authority that he's able to withstand this. Jesus looks political authority right in the eye and rests in, you can only do anything that you do to me because of God. Therefore, you have no real power against me. I know the real power. Jesus, from a physical standpoint here, if you kind of pull back, it does appear that he's sort of the victim. But with one statement, he reminds us he is the one best armed and ready. He is the one who knows really what is at stake and really what battle is at play. When Christianity is maneuvering politics to achieve power, we cannot forget what real battle is at play under the surface. Remembering the powers at play help us to be ready and equipped. We have to keep our eye on the ball because the powers of darkness want us distracted by only what is at the surface. Remember and know the real power. This response from Pilate, or this response from Jesus, throws Pilate again. He's having quite a day. I've got to get him off my hands. Something divine is here. The way he's responding is unnerving me. Jesus tends to be really good at unnerving power, and so should his followers be. So we read next in verse 12. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, but an Aramaic Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. 
Then he told the Jews, Here is your king. They shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. So Caesar is a title. At this point, the actual leader is Tiberius Caesar, and he's this government leader who is also thought to be like a god. And friend of Caesar is actually this technical term, meaning loyalty to Caesar. If you were a friend of Caesar, it helped guarantee your power, your privilege, your safety, your ability to move up in the Roman world. It was an aligning of yourself with a political authority as well as a spiritual one. And it would not bode well with you in the Roman world if you were not a friend of Caesar. So the religious leadership knows their next play to finally back him into a corner is to play the Caesar card. You're not a friend of Caesar. You're not true to the ultimate authority. This talk would feel almost equivalent to them threatening impeachment. And this is finally what makes Pilate buckle, because if this accusation is true, there goes his power. He can't risk that. So Pilate hands him over with these words of, here is your king. Pilate deciding to yield, you have him still sort of swinging power around as he intentionally calls Jesus what he knows will tick them off. I'll relent and give you this, but in my final word about it, I'm gonna say it in a way that's gonna cut you. The maturity of our politicians. He probably tweeted it too. So the religious leaders here, they've compromised their faith. It's not a good look, but the nail in the coffin is really when the chief priests declare, we have no king but Caesar. When they say that they have no king but Caesar, they are declaring allegiance first to a man and a nation. They are declaring allegiance first to this corrupt power over God in order to serve their purposes, which they have attempted to make look like godly purposes. They argue their purposes with scripture and law. He has to die if he claims to be the son of God. It's blasphemy. But in the same moment when they are appealing to scripture, they are pledging allegiance to nation. When religion, when Christianity, when the church tries to hold and use both powers, what will be lost is true religion or real Christianity. What is lost is the purity of the church because politics won't sacrifice for what is of Jesus. If you try to intermingle the powers, the sacrifice is always on the end of Christianity because with God, you cannot serve two masters. When you shift who God is in order to adjust to powers in this world, you lose God because he doesn't yield or bow to anyone. Our God's nature cannot be compromised. So if you believe in a Jesus who submits to nation at all, it's not Jesus. 
If you believe in a God who turns a blind eye to political leadership that treats people as if they're expendable, it's not our God. If you adhere to a gospel that preserves the comfort and prosperity of those with privilege, it's not the gospel. Rather, your faith is an idol that you have made in the image of yourself, in the image of nation, and in the image of power. And our God does not share power. He doesn't submit to a Christianity that picks and chooses when it will allow Jesus a seat at the table. When you make the life and death of Jesus about preserving yourself in this world, it is an offense and you have neutered the gospel in what it is to you and in how you were conveying it to the world. You've centered yourself in the gospel. Evidence of self being centered in the gospel can very clearly be seen in how Christianity engages with politics. It's a tell. When power and privilege use God to control, oppress, or dominate, self is centered in the gospel. This is very evident with compromises specifically that the white evangelical church has made in America to justify a political leader's unrepentant and repeated assaults upon image bearers because of the Christian privilege he protects, you've centered self in the gospel. If you will give your vote to racist politicians in exchange for preserved promises of tax breaks, centered self in the gospel. If your Christianity keeps you comfortable and at peace with leadership that has children taken from their families, that funds systems that disproportionately incarcerate people groups, that sets up structures that force sterilization upon immigrants, that place men in power who assault women, that use violence and force against those demanding equality. If your Christianity justifies this and those that enact it, you have centered self, power, and privilege in the gospel. And that is not the gospel. That's not Jesus. And often in white American evangelicalism, which I feel like I can speak for, we are sort of taught, you know, we're the chosen ones, we're this elect. But we always say it with this flourish of, oh, but I don't deserve it. Yet while we claim we're chosen, but we don't deserve it, we also have a tendency to demand special treatment in the world. This line, between a sense of wonder that God has saved someone like me and that meaning you're entitled to things is crossed pretty quickly when we want politics to maintain our comfort in our position. So you'll make your desires for comfort and security and power into issues of American rights and freedoms, your Christian liberties. And that's an offense to the gospel. Jesus didn't sacrifice himself to make sure that you can stockpile and buy all the guns. Jesus didn't die to make sure that no one can force you to wear a mask when you go into Costco. Jesus didn't offer up his life to ensure tax breaks or no government intervention in the spaces where you just don't feel like it. 
Jesus didn't die so that you would have the freedom to manipulate the government to restrict the things that you don't find favorable, especially people that are different than you. Our Jesus did not die to preserve our comforts in this world. He died to be our ultimate comfort from the things of this world. Jesus didn't die to make sure that you could have first place in this game of he or she who dies with the most power wins. Rather, he died to put to death what is in you that desires power. Take care to not confuse God's favor with you being on top in the world. Our Jesus flipped the script. If anything, if you think evidence of God's favor is you being on top in the world, you best check yourself. And with all of this, there tends to be this fearful talk often in white evangelical space about the decline of the church in America. And often politics are touted as the place where we need to hold the power in order to keep that from happening. This isn't a decline of the church in America. This is us needing to put to death false religion married to political power that has been cloaked under a guise of Christianity. And part of our work as the body of Christ is by Holy Spirit power to purge what is masquerading as God that is not. To actively battle what says it's church, but because of Christ in us and with us, we see it and know, yeah, that's not it. And a lot of people, you know, me included, we feel betrayed, betrayed by the church, angry with it. But you know, while I'm angry with it, I also love it and will spend my life for it. Because where it has betrayed me, where it's been abusive and damaging, I know that's not the real church as it's meant to be. It's what the church has been used, abused, and manipulated to be in order to obtain and maintain power. A church that is bent upon political power and will use people, abuse them, and manipulate to get it, that does not look like Christ. But the church I love is the one where we have God's people while struggling and failing at times, are working to push back darkness, are calling out what is evil, are labeling, are laboring for what is restorative. God's people who are angry by what makes him angry, who are grieved by what grieves his heart, and who are hanging on by a thread of faith at times in a God who has promised, who has promised that one day he's going to come back and make this all new and right again. I love the church that looks like feels like, acts like Jesus, the one that, even when things are dark, tries to bring light, the one that keeps creating beauty, who keeps trying to bring healing and wholeness, one that is humble and repentant when it sins against people, one that is bold and uncompromising when political authorities abuse power, a church that won't let politicians off the hook when they enact and perpetuate hatred and violence toward people. We should be angry with the church that has sacrificed the heart and nature of God for political power. We should be unwilling to let the intermingling of Jesus's power with the power of nation go unchecked. 
it should make it burn within us that that is distorting the gospel and treating the cross frivolously. We should never be okay with that. We should never be at peace with that. We should never let that slide. There is too much at stake for us to let that slide. But we should love this church that is striving to rightly display the heart of our God in the midst of such brokenness in this world. The church that is imperfect with a posture of humility, one that has grace with a backbone, one that will dig in its heels and not waver when there is an assault upon image bearers. A church that refuses to let the name of Jesus be dragged through the mud by those who say that they follow him, but then refuse to love their neighbors. We should love this church that does not require submission to political power in order to be the body of Christ. To believe that Christianity must have political power in order for Jesus and his people to transform the world is to fall into a temptation that Jesus himself resisted. In Matthew 4, we have this scene of the temptations and the devil takes Jesus up to this high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he says, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. I'll give you the political power over the kingdoms if you submit to my power. And the church seems to have a tendency to say, yeah, okay, but we'll take it and still pretend or try to look like we're following Jesus at the same time. But with Jesus, without hesitation, we should say, that's going to be a no. Hard pass. I worship the Lord our God. We serve him only. Jesus would not submit to political power in order to get his kingdom work done. And his lead is a good one for us to follow. After Jesus refuses to fall into the temptations, he refuses to grasp after things of this world, the devil's out. The darkness has to take a break because it's not getting anywhere with him because he refuses to exchange his allegiance to God with anything else. Jesus doesn't need the powers of this world because he trusts the power and the authority of the Father. And for those of us in Christ, this power and this authority that we see here is a great source of fuel where we are discouraged and exhausted in the midst of what we're navigating right now. We can trust the power and authority of our God. Trusting God and remembering where the power lies is how we remain grounded not wavering like Jesus does not waver in the midst of such a mess and trusting God hanging on to the truth of his authority in the darkness makes those powers tremble. What is of the enemy trembles because when it sees you, it sees Christ in you and those powers fear him because they know the ending. At the end of the day, the angst, the damage, the destruction that happens here while we are in this space cannot change the finality of what Jesus did. 
that after absorbing in his body the violence and the trauma and the abuse and the assault of all the evil and the darkness in this world, that he got up again and he walked out of that death. And for those of us who are in Christ, his church, the body of Christ, it's like we walked out of that death with him, except we didn't have to endure the punishment and judgment beforehand. He did that. And so now we, while we are here, have this ability to walk out of that death into life. We are his body doing that, physically present in this world right now. And so we need to labor to meet the places of decay and darkness and death with the power and authority of a life that got up again and said, it's all done, this is all finished. So church, when you pull up the news later today and you instantly start feeling like you're suffocating, someone's sitting on your chest, when you instantly start feeling a little hopeless about the hatred and the darkness that we're dealing with, ask God to help you trust him, to trust in his power and authority We have to ask him to help us remember in this the range of your power. And think of our Jesus, what he walked through, what he did, what he accomplished. And we have to remember that he did that for us for the sake of this world. This world that is not a lost cause because of that. And he, our Jesus, is not taking 2020 off. He is here, he is with us, he's not going anywhere. So hold fast to him, church. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that in the midst of any moments right now where we may be feeling confused, abandoned, maybe even a little lost, that nothing can ever change the fact that we have a God who is steadfast, who is present, who has already set out an ending in which he and his people are victors. And Father, it is tough to remember that in these days. And so I ask for us as a people that where we're struggling with unbelief, that you would help our belief. When we are struggling to trust, that you would help us to trust you. That you would help us to trust on behalf of one another at times. Father, we know that the only way that we walk through this in a manner that is worthy of you is by the power of your spirit in and with us. So I ask that even today we would feel this real sense of your presence here. Help us to have the eyes to see where you are active and present and working around us and help us to remain grounded and rooted in you. Help us, Father, to do this not for our own honor, but for the glory of your name. Amen. Please hear the benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power of the Holy Spirit that is work within us, to him be the glory both in the church and in Christ Jesus now and forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly 
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.